everybody. How's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem U's The Teacher's Alone Podcast, where... What do we do? I'm so tired of saying this. i got to come up with a new one. Where we keep you in touch with what's going on in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. <clears throat> I have to clear my throat. I am here, as always, with co-host and my boss, Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going great, Mike. I can see doing Sunday morning is uh, throwing you off a bit. It is. It is. I need to go back to sleep and have an American Sunday, which I don't have anymore. And we are also here with special guests, both our boss, Dina Ravhan. How's it going, Dina? Long-time listener, first-time podcaster, so I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. President of Jerusalem U. That is true. Yeah. How long have you wanted to say that line? That too. A long-time listener? Years. Yeah, Yeah, but you never find something to say it to. So finally we – that's why we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half so that Dina could finally get to say that. Also other guests, nice to uh, can say that. Yeah, our feedback has has slowed down. People have to send – get back to sending us feedback on the uh, Facebook group or uh, or, you you can contact us through the links that are provided on the podcast or the website. Um. Today's topic. You said both your bosses. You said both your bosses. Alan's my boss, but you're Alan's boss, so you're my boss. I'm not sure if you're referring to Matthew, who's sitting in the room also. Matthew's quietly <laughs> producing. How's it going, Matt? Well, up to everybody in Shavuotov. Good to be here again. I'm uh, just listening today. Well, you can jump in. It's just that you have to leave early, no? Back to, the te- back to teaching again with the teacher's lounge. I know. That's the weird part of our job. How come we have to teach if we're teachers? I don't understand. We could spend all our time in the lounge, and that would be awesome. Um, so I guess you want us to frame today? Well, I guess, in, broadly speaking, what we want to talk about, how educators, basically in the States, present and frame Israel to young Jews, at least that what our perception is of that, and where we think that's off, and why we think it's... What what we think has to be fixed. Is that a good – is that vague enough? I'm pulling the mic over to me. So um, I think it's important to, to add to that frame that Michael and Alan because – and Matthew because they're teaching more than 500 mostly North American, although global students every single year in the Jerusalem U Gap Year program where we go into 21 schools and teach modern Israel and Zionism – um, the perspective that we have sitting here in Jerusalem U is unique because we are meeting students, many of them, after 12 or 13 years of Jewish education. Not all of them, but many of them. And so when we're obs- making observations around the education in North America and the world, it's based on our experience with many of the students. And we've, to a certain extent, changed the way we teach and what we teach because we've gotten a sense of what our students understand and what they don't. Not dealing with the issue of knowledge. In other words, we're not talking about do they know about Balfour, do they know about Herzl as facts, which is problematic. That's a different problem. But we're just talking about understanding now what's their global grasp. How how they frame the relationship is, I think, what we're talking about. It's funny because when we talk about Israel – and in terms of education, it's always like it's it's in the, the sense of relationship, where you don't talk about that in other even even when you're studying I don't know even in Jewish history you don't talk about the person's relationship with that, right? Um, so what do I mean by relationship? Because almost overwhelmingly the way that we teach about Israel in North America is we teach we want students to love Israel. <laughs> that that's the and the goal. So that's relationship uh right? It's not it's not necessarily knowledge or track or all those things. It's really, you know, how you're gonna feel about it. Do you think that's working? Is your impression as a teacher that that's working? 
I think it's working, yeah. I think that most of our students do come out loving Israel, but they come out also really confused about um, what that means and what that and then what's the next step and how they actually see Israel as a um, they, they know like viscerally that it's important in their lives, but I don't think they can articulate why. Well, I think there's a number of things they can't articulate. Do you want to say something? No. I think one of our tests is: Can you explain why the state of Israel exists and needs to exist? Don't use the words God or Holocaust. And most of our students have a lot of trouble with that. I don't even think it's our students. I think many people, when we present this, to, even to educators or other <laughs> adults, yeah, have, yeah. they don't even understand what like we're talking about. Like, why would that even be a test? What, what does that even matter? Well, it, uh, and, and we feel that that's critical um, because, Mike? Well, you looked like you wanted to talk. So. No, no, there's a lot of reasons why I think it's important. Yeah. But I think, I think what ends up happening, and this is what we were talking about a little before we started recording, is Israel is presented within the context of religious education as connected to the stories in the Bible, as connected to their ritual life. So, there, so therefore, just like you love Shabbat, you have to love Israel. Right. So, and there's something else going on here with Israel that we sometimes have a hard time talking about. It, it, it's a funny – you have to unlearn a certain way of thinking to get to the reality. Like for instance – so one of the things we do is we say, well, why did Ben-Gurion want to live here? He moved here in – 1904. The beginning of the second Aliyah. and. Well, the second Aliyah, I can remember. I just get mixed up 1903. I'm always like a year off. Um, Herzl dies in 1903, right? Second Aliyah starts in 1904? Uh, so, yes. Woo! I got one. But I think Herzl also dies in 1904. Dang it. Um, I was close. I was a year off. Yeah. Or maybe you were off. Yeah. Um, but, but why did he want to live here and build a state here? It wasn't because of the Holocaust, because it was 1904. And it wasn't because of God. Because he was an atheist. Meaning Ben-Gurion didn't believe in God, <laughs> right? He very clearly didn't believe in God, even though he was a biblical scholar. So why do, why do our students have difficulty understanding that? Like why do they look at us like we're crazy when we ask them that question? Why is that a hard question to answer? So, you know, even though I'm old, I'm a product of this. And even though I continue to educate myself when I started at Jerusalem U a year and a half ago and had the for good fortune of meeting and learning from Alan and Michael, I found myself struggling similarly. And then, of course, um, taking this role as president of Jerusalem U and really wanting to try to understand what the needs are in Israel education to make sure that Jerusalem U can be addressing those needs and really starting to listen to what's happening with the students, understanding, and even listening to my own children who, though we've made Aliyah two and a half years ago, my older children graduated from schools which are considered Zionist or religious Zionist schools. And um, it's interesting because I was just telling Michael and Alan before, I feel like it all starts for for many of us. I, I'm, I, was raised, I was raised in Orthodox day school, so I'm sure that it's different in other schools. But for Orthodox day schools, um, we learned the first Rashi, uh, the first commentary in the very beginning of the Bible um, in Genesis, in Bereshit, which talks about and I think l lays the foundation for 
some of the actual confusion later on. Do you want to talk about what that is? Well, the, the first, Rashi, the famous medieval commentator who really started the business, if you could, I wouldn't call it that really, but who started the business of writing basic commentary on, on the Torah, the first, in, in the beginning of Breshid, he says, why is the Torah starting with stories? If the Torah is supposed to be laws, what do we need stories for? And he says these stories are necessary because they show us that God created the, the world and therefore he has the right to give any part of it to anyone he wants. And one day, he says, people will come to us and claim you stole this land. And we can say to them, but God gave it to us. Once that image is put into a Jewish student's head, that's the answer to the question, which, of course, is for that all practice. That violates your rule of saying, talk about why Israel, need, why the, the state needs to exist, and you're not allowed to use the word God, and you're not allowed to use the word Holocaust. Now you've just taken God out of that, so right. now we can't say it. Well, and, and you're left disarmed. In other words, you go on a college campus, and you know the answer is because God created the world, and therefore he had the right to give it to who he wants to give it to. Well, that's not a valid answer in modern geopolitics. So they're, they're disarmed. So I think I'm glad that you just said the word college campus because I feel like that's what we're all talking about. College campus, college campus. Certainly we talk about that a lot here. Um, I think that what um, – I think what we see and certainly the Avichai study um, that was done on Israel education in North America confirmed a lot of this, which is that there's a lot of really good teaching. I don't want to disparage our schools and we are very fortunate at Jerusalem U to be working with – and collaborating and conferring with people who are working on curricula or really trying to understand. But I think that people who've been in the school business for a long time are puzzled because they're not quite sure what's happening and why what used to work isn't working anymore. And so when we talk about, oh, college campus, college campus, what exactly is – what is going on I think it's actually happening before campus because now with um, the accessibility of information, our students are being confronted with ideas um, by watching Nas Daily, you know, on their on their Facebook, you know. And um, but I think what is it that used to work that worked for so many? Again, I'll date myself in my generation where there were, you know, there were. Less issues of all of a sudden the veil being lifted and now all these questions coming, you know, all these questions bubbling to the surface where students are now saying, wait, I love I love Israel and I was always trained to love Israel, but now I feel like I don't understand. And what is all this information that I'm learning about now? And now I'm starting to wonder, wait, maybe I shouldn't love Israel because Israel does things that aren't right all the time. But I was trained that you know, whether it's God gave us the land, whether it's because of the Holocaust, or whether it's just all the great things about Israel. Now, all of a sudden, I'm confused, and I'm starting to feel like maybe I was lied to. Well, why do I feel like my educators aren't telling me the whole story? There's something else going on here that we don't get to enough in school. Or if we get to it, I'm not being given a totally clear picture of what the issue is. I find that's what students feel. I, I agree. And I also – it's hard to say. First of all, I don't think it's just Orthodox students because I think that non-Orthodox schools that we teach in and uh, students who you asked, you know, why do we get to be here? Many will say because, you know, what God gave it to us, right? Even if they don't know the first Rashi or even don't even know the – you know, necessarily the books of the Bible, they'll give that region because that's something that's, you know, been taught for a couple thousand years. Um 
so that that's sort of out there. And I think on the other hand, I, I, I've never really – whenever I ask this question also like, okay, so what if you use the God question on campus? What do you think about that? I, how will that work? Yeah, how will that work? Do you think that's a good argument? I don't think I've ever had a student that said that is good. Like, they, know, they all know they that that's a personal that. belief, so I can't use it to convince somebody else because they may not share that belief, and, and they probably all, don't. Right. And, all, and that's, I think, the second part because – and this is, I think, may, maybe – I don't know what students are growing up with a, bit, a little differently is this sort of relativism of their – you know, that, well, I know it's my personal belief, but the other belief is really just as legitimate – Right, and so Muslims can say it's theirs or that, and I, I, that's just as legitimate. So therefore, now I'm in a quandary. Well, since it's a religious issue, then their religious perception is as valid as my religious perception. So neither of us has the right to claim that we have a more valid claim than the other. And, I, and I'm not so sure that we grew up in the same subjectivity. Uh, I don't know, you know, it could, because. Of, for sure not. I mean, you know, it's kind of the end of uh, – we are living in the age of the end of authority and the end of deference um, and the age of information and accessibility to information. We make jokes about how when – oh, in fact, this past this past Shabbat lunch when my husband and I were talking about something, our 19-year-old shout-out says just – she said just stop for a second and tell me when you – because we were referring back to when we went to college. And she said, when you went to college, Mommy, and you needed to look something up, where did you go? And I said, the library. You know, and that was like the – and she said, that's the end of our conversation because you can't even begin to understand. I wanted to just say that this conversation about um, understanding – um, how we teach Israel, understanding Zionism, religious Zionism, and certainly the larger story of the Jewish story, it's not about giving kids talking points so that they can convince other people on campus. We are, that is just, that is actually, it's not even what, a few of them want that. A few students who are inclined for that for that disposition, you know, they want to engage um, and and be that kind of represent, representative for Israel, that, you know, that's for the, the minority. But for the majority, it's all about Jewish identity. It's all about Jewish identity. And in fact, one of the things we spoke about this weekend also, we often have a lot of guests who are studying here at our table. And one of the things that we were talking about is that our schools in the diaspora and then here in Israel are they preparing students to get to college campus, not to defend Israel, but to feel so strongly Jewish that even when they're tested and and other people around them are saying things that don't um, agree with what, you know, how they've been taught, that they won't be shaken to their core and that the the differences of opinion will be things that will open their mind and help them be more curious and explore and all of these really positive things, but it won't cause existential crisis beyond what's normal for a college student. You know, it's normal to to have a certain degree of existential crisis. But but what I think that what we're hearing and certainly what the What's going on with many organizations and and the concern of parents is that our children, our young adults come to college campus and all of a sudden there's a totally different narrative. 
and they're ready to just say, you know what, I've been lied to, or, you know, everything, everything starts to crumble. We have a theory, we, we developed a theory about this, that it's not just about Israel education, that it is very much tied to Jewish identity. Well, if, you're, if, if they've been taught that Israel is part of their Jewish identity and their Israel identity is undermined, then their Jewish identity is often undermined as well. Exactly. And I think – and this is – going back to this idea of the sort of Shabbat and Israel, right, the distinction we have to make. Because we know that students on campus are struggling with Shabbat as much as is Israel. But they're not coming out and saying like, oh, you lied to me about Shabbat. It wasn't something that re-energized me or you lied. You know what I mean? It's not. And also nobody's telling them, oh, you don't use electricity for 25 hours? Oh, that's, that's a disgusting crime against yeah. humanity. Exactly. Shabbat doesn't become this political moral issue. It becomes more of whatever, however it fits into my life or doesn't fit into my life. Whereas Israel is a political issue and a moral issue it comes down to on campus. Um, and, you know, maybe there are other ones similar, like role of women, I think, maybe also maybe into that. Also. And homosexuality. That's right. Exactly. Thinking thinking my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and But Israel is the most, like, is the most out there, I think, in many ways um, for our students. Um, because when you come to, um, you know, women's roles or, or LGBTQ stuff, those are, are details, Whereas Israel, we've really framed as a klal, as a general <laughs> part of their identity. So now, of course, it, it becomes a very, very um, contentious issue. And, and I think that that's something that we really need to address um, in, that, in that sense, in that, that, it, that it's not just a religious, it's not just a feeling. It, it is a political, and political is important and to understand it and frame into it because we're actually – that's the difference between teaching about Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, and Medinat Israel, the state of Israel. Because the Eretz Israel in, in, in the classic thought is this kind of ideal place. That we have this beautiful connection to and all this. Medinat Israel is the real meat and potatoes of what the Jewish people have created, and that's dirty. You know, dirty in a, in a good way. It's right. There's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not purified. It's life. It's real life. It's not agriculture. It's farming. Yeah. You're actually getting your hands in the soil. Exactly. And I think that we need to bring that, that, that's where we need to bring it down. I see Dina. I'm dying to say something. So, well, this, anyway, that's, oh, no. <laughs> this one mic thing. Okay, you guys did not see the lunge. <laughs> this one mic thing is, um, I just want to clarify what Alan said. So what, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that some of the other challenges that our young adult students on campus are facing are around other issues specific to Judaism, whether it's the, the role of women in Judaism, um, homosexuality in Judaism. And if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that those are very important and very serious, serious issues that we need to address, yet their details and that how, and I, I'm wondering if this is true, that how we approach those don't necessarily like undermine their whole Jewish identity because they can find a way to either resolve it, I'm, I'm asking, but that with Israel, because Israel is such an integral piece of their overall Jewish identity in a different way than the role of women, maybe, and um, homosexuality is that when they start to question their relationship with Israel, that that rocks them more to their core than the other issues? 
Well, I think I'll say I'll say it this way. I, I think there there is somewhat of a truth there, and um, what you're saying. Like I do think I'm that that to, I'm no, trying to understand what you were saying. Okay, no, I'm saying what you, how you're feeding it back to me. I think that that's that's what I was trying to say, and I think it's because of this. Also, now that you say it, is because those other issues are starting to be dealt with. Role of women has been an issue that's been dealt with at least you could say seriously for twenty twenty five years now. Now, not everybody may not be satisfied where it comes, but it is out there. People are talking about, it. and also the, the issues of LGBTQ stuff is also beginning to be addressed. And I you feel a sense that there's a reckoning within the Jewish world of yeah. dealing with these in different ways, and I get to choose where I want to fit on the spectrum of how to deal with it. I have options open to me. The world is changing, right? Exactly. And with Israel, it's almost like I think there's a sense that there's a close, like the establishment doesn't want to deal with it, like. The establishment wants to hold the that what we what we don't like the word of pro-Israel line of okay we just have to support Israel and let's you know that's the talking point. Who's the establishment? I want to know who the establishment is because I think that schools certainly what we're hearing. <laughs> okay, I need. Is there a doctor in the house? Because my arm was just pulled out of its socket. Because I think that schools are very much starting to. Um, to recognize that this is an issue that must be addressed differently. But when you say the establishment, I want to understand, like, the larger Jewish community is still, I think we see that at Jerusalem, that the larger Jewish community is still in a very pro-Israel stance and afraid, afraid of um, opening up to, I'm not even sure what box. opening up the Pandora's box. Well, I, I, I think it's also, and this is something else that's changed, is that there was, I think, in the past, an, you wanted to indoctrinate, not in a bad way. You wanted to, you want to. Part of religious education is indoctrination. You want people to love and be part of and feel, and that's not necessarily an educational goal. That's a more affective domain. Feel a sense of loyalty and belonging. Education can sometimes – sometimes education and indoctrination are intention. And here I think we've erred very far because indoctrination and pro-Israel worked for so long back in the day when Israel wasn't under challenge of moral criticism, back when the enemies of Israel were attacking her basically physically and not politically as successfully. Uh, I think that that worked, that, that leaning – erring on the side of indoctrination and being pro-Israel – I think today it doesn't. I think it's counterproductive. And when you need to choose, you need to err on the side of it. Education. And more than being teaching kids and showing them only pro-Israel, you have to understand Zionism. In other words, let, let's say I grew up in America. I learned social studies in America. And we talked about the controversial issues of the day when I was in school. You know, I wrote about I remember Mrs. Rabinowitz in fifth grade when John Lennon was killed and I came into class. And I, and I had an idea already in fifth grade who the Beatles were, but she talked about how is uh, – what was his name? Chapman? How is he going to get a, a fair trial in New York? Where are you going to find a jury? Because we were learning about it in social studies. And I was like, oh, my God. The world actually has to do with and, – and, you know, with, with what I'm learning in school. Like these questions, to be a good American citizen, I have to really think about the pros and the cons of a jury system and how it works and what are the difficulties in that. And so – Zionist education, which is based on the idea of the Jews as a nation, rebuilding our state after 2,000 years, the only people in the world to survive exile at all, have now come back and rebuilt their state. And there is no program for this because we are unique. And because it is unique, there are no analogies that people can understand us. And so people on massive scales are misunderstanding us. Uh, us, we are misunderstanding. Including Jews, are misunderstanding Israel and what it is. 
Can you can you explain a little bit what those misunderstandings are? Well, uh, the the most basic one is they turn to the analogy of colonialism to understand Israel. A bunch of white people from Europe come and they take land from brown people. We've seen that before. So that's what this is again. This is a really long-lasting version. That's not a good analogy. Uh, I mean, we even go, you know, more basic. The uh, that and we, so what we do in our class is that there's a fundamental lack of understanding of what the Jews are, right. and that and more more times than not, we ask our students, and you can try this at home if you'd like, say what are the Jews, and the and the answer that we'll get is a religion, and then it becomes very confusing. So. Um, Zionism's answer. By the way, even when they say people and nation, they don't totally understand what that means. Right. They know it's more than just a religion. That there's something because we're because again, um, our uh, at least the education perspective that I come from, um, and I can't speak to the other ones as as comprehensively. But what we come from is that the Jews are Jews because of Abraham, and then because of getting the Torah at Mount Sinai and that getting the Torah at Mount Sinai was like the, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of our Jewish um, experience and that that's what guided us, you know, moving so, forward. That is, that is, it's true, but what, what is well, Hold on a second. What is the Torah? Hold on a second. Right. That, I would say if I was a secular person, I would say that is the story that the Jewish people told about themselves. That is the myth, the founding myth of the Jewish people. And it's a potent myth and it's important. But if I was an atheist, I wouldn't believe it was true as historical fact. I would believe that it's true in terms of ideas about being better people and what Jews should do. But I can't bring that into a modern political conversation. The first set, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to go the other way. If Meaning, because we're talking about religious kids more here, right? No. So I, I don't think so. I mean, as you you pointed out yourself, we we see this in non-orthodox institutions also. The kids no, turn to religious true. ideas Correct. to define the basic fundamental saying, connection to the land, and I, and that's what I'm saying. When we fundamentally, I think, may I I would say we po- potentially fundamentally teach Mahmoud Har Sinai right getting the Torah Sinai wrong because when you say that, that that's pinnacle event, what does that mean for you? Right? What do, what do you teach from that? I mean, the, mitzvah, the the whole concept of that is how to create a nation. Well, that's what, what God says explicitly. Right. God says explicitly, the reason I'm choosing Abraham is so that he will build a nation exactly. of righteousness and justice. And then at Sinai, the story in the Torah is, I will make a covenant with a nation so that they will be great and they will be a blessing to the world. And the, and the first mitzvah we get after, you know, after Parshas Yisro in Mishpatim, right, the, are the laws of how you create a society – not keeping Shabbat, right? Right? Not, not, well, not, Shabbat, not kosher. Keeping Shabbat, Shabbat was one of the. Harsina, right. So that's on the thing, right? Uh, but on the Luch, right? On the, on the, on the Ten Commandments, so you have those different ones. But I'm saying, but the next, the next sort of piece of the Torah is, it's not about Kashrut. It's not about that. It's about how you form a just society. And those other ones come later. So the, well, the Bible, I mean, the Bible is the story of ethical monotheism. If you look at the prophets are railing about, they're not railing. So they're saying, wonderful that you're doing these ritual things, but why are there a poor person? Why are you stepping over a poor person to go to the temple to bring a sacrifice? Your sacrifice is worthless. So, and, and they're railing about this, that you're not becoming the ethical light to the other nations. You're not being the example to the nations. I would argue that that's the central story of the Bible is God setting up that mission and the Jews' failure 
to achieve it. And, that, and the, the, the key point there, and I think I'm stressing what you're saying, is not that we're, uh, uh, the religion is a light to the the world is the is the nation, because the there's no separation between what we would call today you know ritual laws and and civil laws right it's all in the Torah that they're all the same there's no difference between what again keeping kosher or or, or stealing right I mean those are all that's what ethical monotheism is you for, you form a relationship with God that demands ethical perfection and the rituals are the ways you interact with God and keep that relationship healthy. And and we don't. I don't think we teach it that way. I don't think Listen, we teach the it. whole thing. But the key is: Are we teaching the Jews as a nation or not? And we don't. We talk about on Tisha B'av. What are we mourning? We're mourning that the temple was destroyed. And the kids say, "I don't care about the temple." And we say, "Wow, but what about the Holocaust?" That also. Well, that is true. The Holocaust is a result. But the point is, it's we mourn Jerusalem not only for the temple. We do mourn the loss of our central temple but we're also mourning the loss of national independence which is, which is when he asks when we teach in class what was in the temple every student will say the korbanot oh we come there and you know, keep pouring everything they almost never are able to get until you really pull it out of them that the sanhedrin the court sat in the temple the king sat, was adjacent to the temple. It was the it wasn't just the it wasn't just about a religious connection to God. It was the whole nation's civil structure of the judiciary, the leadership, and the and the priests who were part of that power structure. By the way, the the, the religion is structured to to emphasize this national story. It's not we're not in competition with religion here. The religion, for instance, we all teach our kids. Oh no! Once you're born a Jew, you're a Jew. There's nothing you can do. I don't think it's a meaningful sentence if if a person in a, a Christian were to say, "I am a very committed Christian. My Christian identity is very important to me. I just am an atheist." I think that's a very weird sentence. I don't think it's a weird sentence at all to say, "I'm a very connected Jew. My Jewish identity is very important to me. I'm an atheist," because the the Torah is telling you that your national identity, nation, religion isn't inherited. You choose to believe it and be part of it or not. Na- nationality is basically inherited. That exactly what you just said. That is what is so hard to reconcile. Correct. That exactly that you can that, and this is what I struggled with when I started speaking with you. Um, is that I don't? It is so hard to understand that. And the exact example that you gave that a Christian, you will not hear a Christian say, "I am a committed Christian and I don't believe in God." That is an oxymoron. But. You will often hear, we, we know and love and work with many Jews who are very proud to be part of the Jewish people, who have all different types of relationships to religion, God, and, and Judaism. And that is, that's the key, and I think th- these are not the conversations that are happening. By the way, part of the problem on campus, we talk about this crisis on campus, we don't think it's such a crisis, but I'm glad it's bringing our attention to these issues. To me, I see it m- less of a challenge to the Jewish world than I do to a wake-up call to Jewish education. Guess what? Because you're a member of religion, you don't get a state or a homeland. You can practice your religion wherever you want, including Judaism. That does not give you the right to claim a homeland or a state. It just doesn't. We believe in the modern times that ethno-national groups should self-rule. That's the best way to have peace. That if there's empires and colonialism, that people will be oppressed, and that's bad. And Zionism is one of those movements that says, yeah, exactly, ethno-national groups should rule themselves. And I have students and adults constantly say to me, and 
well, you know, nobody's telling uh, the United States to give back land to the natives. So why are people picking on Israel? Aside from the fact that that's a ridiculous moral defense of Israel to say, well, America got away with genocide. Why shouldn't it? But hold on, I just let me finish my sentence. You, explain. I, you need to explain that. You need to explain why that that's ridiculous. Yes. I am, I am, I am. So aside from the fact that that's a ridiculous, it's not a moral defense at all. In other words, the fact that they got away with that in the 19th century should not defend somebody getting away with that in the 21st century. But the key is the Europeans who came to North America and stole the land from the indigenous peoples and committed acts of real genocide were Europeans in a new world. That's what they called it. The Jews are a Semitic people coming home and are indigenous to this land. Now, the fact that we encountered – And when those same European people were going to America, my family and those of us sitting in this room were all hunkering down trying to avoid being in the pogroms of those same European people in Europe as the Native Americans in America. I'm not, by the way, I'm not trying to compare victimhoods no, or – I didn't mean that. I'm just I, saying that just exactly. shows we were other in Europe. We were other – you know how other we were in Europe? In the 19th century in the United States, a group of people were emancipated. They were the African-Americans. In Europe in the 19th century, a group of people were emancipated. The emancipation of the Jews in the 19th century was saying you can leave parts, the ghetto and be citizens. Parts, parts of Western Europe. Yeah. So, so we were other. I mean Zionism is that story, is the, is, is, the awakening, is the waking up to the truth that for 100 years Jews tried to deny and not really much more before that. For probably under 100 years, Jews have been saying, well, I guess I can be French, but my religion will be the Mosaic faith. But Zionism said, no, no, that was a terrible choice. I understand why you made it to get out of the ghetto, but it's not going to work, and it's time for us to think as a nation again and start acting like one. And that's why we come back to our original one, which was we dealt with the God one, why this all precedes the Holocaust. <laughs> because this whole movement of Zionism and coming back to Israel was, you know, 50 years or more, really, um, before the Holocaust. Because there was this awakening and understanding that that for people to be able to have self-determination, they need to have their own land. They need to have control of their own their own public space. They need to have control of their own power structures. Now that my daughter Nomi is a tour guide on Har Herzl, this you know I'm learning so much more this year than I've ever learned before. But and I know that they're all different forms of Zionism. But my we only have two minutes left. No, no, no. It's okay. We can go a little longer. We're going to need to have two parts to this because we're not done. But um, when you say the Holocaust has nothing to do with this, one of the reasons why the awakening of Zionism occurred was because there was a realization that Jews were not indigenous in Europe and they were being persecuted and there was concern um, for their safety. It wasn't just – when you say self-determination, it sounds very lofty, but it was really self-preservation that was a one of the, one of the driving forces of – the Zionist movement. No question. A major one. And, and, uh, and uh, not implicitly, explicitly so. You know, what's driving Pinsker and what's driving Herzl and what's driving these early thinkers is there's a what the Europeans called the Jewish question in Europe. This isn't working. This relationship isn't working. And we're seeing, we're seeing it not work in Western Europe. We're seeing it not work in Eastern Europe. And the Zionists said, we have the key that unlocks the whole thing, ladies and gentlemen. We're a nation living in exile and that's not healthy for the host. And it, we're like a guest that stayed too long. And that's not good for the host, and it's not good for the guest, and it's time to go home. Uh, not that I'm disagreeing, but I just want to like I want to punch home this the reason why we say Holocaust because had the Holocaust not happened, we would still have the rights to our own homeland, and that's the point there. You're right that 
that right that it was part of self preservation all those things but but that is not again th- those aren't the reason th- those aren't the the fundamental reason although it, it definitely affected the united nations vote in 1947 oh, oh it absolutely has a political you know it had political effect but if it weren't for the if it weren't for the holocaust we eventually probably would have had a state i can't say for sure but i think so if it weren't for the zionist movement the Holocaust would have been, I don't know, a third of the Jews murdered. I don't know that there would be Jews. I don't know what would have happened. But there certainly wouldn't be a state of Israel. So I guess the question really is, and I know we don't have that much time left, is so so nation nationhood versus religion, how do we understand us as a nation and a people when we are – when not not everybody believes that Jews need to be in Israel? In other words, as a as a people, uh, Zionism does. Well, uh, yeah, yes and no. I mean, there were Zionist thinkers who who didn't necessarily believe that all the Jews needed to be in 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 Israel. Again, Zionism was a movement, so there's a, there are many ideologies within there. But the fundamental ideology, you know, the fundamental thing that everybody agreed on was that there needed to see at one point there needed to be some kind of state, and that a strong center and state would also reverberate out to the diaspora. There are many Zionist thinkers who didn't think that they would necessarily eliminate it. In long term, I don't know anybody who said in long term there will always be a large diaspora community. Haram, Haram didn't say. Haram was saying that our priority should be creating a cultural center that will reach the diaspora. I don't know. I don't want to get into. We, we argue about this all the time, but I it, it definitely well. Look, if the idea is Buber, that for sure, I mean, Buber they were binational, but they were Zionist thinkers, you know. Okay, on the fringes, but it, it, but in the end, it doesn't matter. You can be the kind of Zionist thinker and answer that question the way you want to. You can be a not Zionist thinker and say, I don't believe in Zionism. You can say the whole Zionist thing doesn't make sense to me. You have to understand that Israel is the state formed by Zionism, and the people who live here and built it and run it, and and the. And the League of Nations and the United Nations, who 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 acknowledged it, were doing it based on this national idea. So you don't have to agree with it, but you have to understand the the conflict here, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is not between Europeans and a local indigenous people. It's between two indigenous people with pretty valid claims to the same land. That's a very different problem. And if you don't frame it that way, once you frame it that way, all these things that we're worried are going to upset kids. Well, no, that's a real struggle. And I understand what Israel's doing in that context. And maybe I don't agree with it. Maybe I think Israel can do things. Okay, great. That's not off-putting because that's a very real struggle that we really do have. We had it, by the way, if you study your history well, we had it when we returned in Second Temple times as well with the Samaritans. It's not the first time we faced this problem. We, we've returned from exile twice. Nobody else has done it once. So. I guess I, I, it's really back to our original question, which I guess we won't answer much more. But so how is Zionism or I, I want to say the word Israel education, because I don't think that all schools are calling it Zionism. They're calling it Israel education. So how how are schools grappling with this issue of the whole history of founding the state, the purpose of founding the state, nationhood, and really what it means to contemporary students today. What the what that whole story means to them. How what's how is it being interpreted? That's what I would call a social studies education about Israel, about their homeland. Yeah, but how is it doing it? Well, uh, you tell me. You saw the Avichai study. Yeah, I mean, again, I won't go back to what I said before. Most of what the Avichai study says, Alex Pomerantz. Uh, Thompson, sorry, Alex Thompson um, put out clearly said that most schools are educating towards love and not towards 
um, you know, fundamental understanding and, and or seeing their role in it and those things. And that, that, that's where the problem lies, I think. Then we don't understand why that love isn't sufficient on campus. So we try to teach them talking points to respond to negative things people say about Israel. But that has no context. Well, I would argue it's not even love. I would argue it's like infatuation. Right, because real love recognizes the faults in the other person and loves them anyway, right? Or 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 embraces it and tries to work it through. Whereas, you're really trying to teach infatuation, where you just you know. Listen, I, I got to tell you, I, I have the infatuation only goes so far. Like I have, it breaks my heart when, when my you know foreign students complain about Israelis. Oh, Israelis are this. Israelis are that. What do you would you would you talk about? Jew, I mean, that's a really weird way to talk about your fellow. Jew. I don't know that you would say Americans this or Amer- There's a tone that's... Well, people say Americans this, Americans that all the time. Israelis certainly do. But I'm saying Americans don't talk about... You complain about this kind of thing. In general, I think our, our discourse is coarsened and we don't talk about our brothers and sisters appropriately in any context. But there is a sense of distance and lack of understanding. American Jews feel like they're consumers of Israel and they feel like Israelis are sort of working the store for them. And they don't feel that they're their brothers and sisters. And I'm overstating and generalizing. But I think that's something that needs to be taken seriously by American educators. And by the way, like you said earlier, first of all, the good work they're doing at making them love, even if it is infatuation, is very successful. There are schools doing a great job. And there are schools who do take these things seriously. We just think there's a, there's, there's overall the emphasis on Zionism as a national movement is, is missing that, is, is missing the overarching big narrative that they need to employ. And I would argue to not be, that it's important to be self-critical also. I think that, that Israel, Israelis are partly responsible for this also. You think? Yeah, I do think. And I think that they... What about the Israeli government? Do you think they're doing a bang-up job? <laughs> With which part? Being a government? Making sure that Jews around the world feel connected and invited and welcome and part of the story? Exactly. And they, that's, I, another, that's another podcast. I think that, that it's been too long, forgetting all the different issues, but that they actually haven't... They, they, they assume Assume that Jews from from outside of Israel should be supportive. They assume it. It's an assumption as opposed to making them feel part of the part of the team. Right. It's, a, it's a new age, and I think that maybe in the early founding of the state, and maybe through sixty seven, and maybe even seventy three, um, the sense of Jewish peoplehood and the centrality of Israel for that for all types of Jews, I think was more clear-cut and much more of a given. And nowadays, because diaspora Jewry, certainly in North America, is thriving and flourishing, um, you know, pretty much. I mean, certainly not the case. It's thriving and flourishing everywhere in the world, but under different circumstances and different types of threats, but without threats really in North America. And because of that, the centrality of Israel is losing um, its importance or, you know, I I hate to say it, and I hope this doesn't come off as cynical. I think there was a sense in America that this scrappy little country of Jews is something we have to help. And you know, in, and I've said this before, in 1948, there were 6 million Jews in America and 600,000 Jews in Israel. Today, there's under 6 million Jews in America and well over 6 million Jews in Israel. And so the relationship people are having to – well, I thought we're the helpful uncle that helps our struggling nephew get by. And Israel's looking and saying – you know, if you want to send, that's great, send us money, but we're fine, and you're the ones in trouble. You're the ones facing a difficult economic and social future, and assimilation is is is, uh, is unraveling you from within. And nobody's really stopped and and looked at what that means. I, I, I find it, as a Zionist, I find the question of, you know, my students will say to me, doesn't Israel need Jews in the diaspora? 
And I'll say, okay, I don't know. Does Italy need Italian, the majority of Italians to live in, out of Italy? And I'll say, why would they? I'm like, I don't know. Why should Israel? Like, I don't understand the question to, from my money. I mean, they're asking that because as an American myself, there's an assumption that, you know, a very powerful and critical role of the American Jewish community is the incredible largesse, you know, that they, they, they're funding the money for even our own organization. I mean, we're funded exclusively by people who are out almost. It's huge. It's huge. But, but so that, that's why they say, that's why they'll say, of course, there's a role for Jews outside of Israel. There's certainly a role, but is that role necessary? In other words, could we work more as a normal nation? That to me is. Matt's giving us the time, uh, turning over the time. Oh, I thought he left. When is he doing poking and yelling? <laughs> um, maybe we should wrap up, though. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dina. It, really, I have so much more to say, so we're going to have to do this again. But really, I have so much more to learn. And I really – I just want to say for those of you out there who can promote this podcast, I encourage you to do that. You know, We want to hear your feedback. We want to know what you want to hear about, want to talk about. And I know personally I listen every single Friday when I'm getting ready for Shabbat. I listen on my headset in my kitchen while I'm cooking, and I learn something every week. So thank you. Sure. Uh, it was great having you, Dina. We would love for you to come back for another thing. I think we're just going to have to get the rules down about when grabbing the mic is uh, <laughs> permissible. Or not. I don't know what you're talking about. When the bruises heal, we'll have you back. How about that? All right. Thanks so much, and bye-bye. You've been listening to the Jerusalem U Podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. The Teacher's Lounge is produced by Matthew Lippman. You can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere where you can find any podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, etc., and we'd really appreciate if you would give us feedback and ratings in those places and recommend it to your friends. Thanks. Bye-bye.